0: My friends, I wanna take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month, for a live, inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. And here's a secret, it's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now, check it out. It's at johnolieryinspires.com forward slash studio. One more time, it's Inspires.com forward slash studio Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. On every Live Inspired podcast, I bring on amazing guests to discuss their life story so that we all can better understand and then more fully live out our own life stories. Adam Caden-Holland is a writer, a comic, and an actor. Esquire Magazine calls him one of the top 25 comics to watch. He's the co-writer and the star of the comedy, Those Who Can't. He's also been on all the evening shows, including Conan and Adam. Listen to this one. This is huge. Adam has been described as being both genial and having pretty good teeth. Two traits that I think we can all strive for. So this is pretty big stuff right now. But as remarkably- Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Brother, we're not done yet. Hang on. As remarkably funny and as successful as Adam is, we'll spend a significant amount of our time discussing his sister, Lydia. We'll talk about their amazing friendship, their upbringing, their life, and then eventually her death as the result of suicide. It is the subject of Adam's new book, Tragedy Plus Time. It's, of course, a tragic story, and it's mixed with moments of, believe it or not, great joy and laughter and love, and I think even eventually, redemption. But what better time to have this conversation than right now in the midst of Suicide Awareness Month? My friends, this is an emotional topic. It's one that, that I believe affects every listener and every family, every business out there. So uh, I ask you right now to open wide your minds, your hearts, open up those journals, prepare to laugh, to love, to feel, maybe even to cry as we bring on our newest friend, Adam Caden Holland. Adam, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you.
0: You know, I don't know if you want to talk first about the book, the great teeth, or uh, you being genial. Why don't you? Why don't you take it forward from wherever you'd like?
1: I mean, the the teeth was a big win. I had to, <laughs> you know, I had to fight my family to get the braces off earlier than they wanted me to get them off. They said they weren't ready. But I said I'm ready, and you know, 25 years later, they're still going pretty strong.
0: Well, I, I've seen photos. You look great. So the uh, your uh, you. your prognosis was dead on. You wrote a beautiful book that both my wife and I read over this weekend. Tell me why you wrote the book.
1: Well, I mean, as you said in in your intro there, I was so incredibly close with my little sister, and I I loved her, and I love her, and we were buddies and, and comedy friends, and when I lost her, it was just utterly devastating to me and my family, and it was at a time in my life where my comedy career was starting to go really well. I just sort of shut down and I didn't want to do comedy. I didn't feel funny anymore. And I didn't feel like that was a platform where I could talk about this, Mm -hmm. which is all I was thinking about. So I just started writing about it. um, Out of a purely selfish need to process it and to purge it from me, I had to kind of get it out in the written word. And that sort of led to the book, you know, a series of articles that I put out there and it felt good and people responded and it helped me sort of heal and, it just sort of all led towards the book.
0: For those who are unfamiliar with your writing, your comedy, your acting, why don't you give us all, Adam, a snapshot of, of what you're doing today professionally?
1: Um, well, I have a TV show called Those Who Can't. And the third season comes out later this year. I'm a stand-up comic, um, you know, but I was also a writer for my whole life. I wrote for a newspaper and, um it alt weekly out here in Denver and I've published things in various magazines and I was always kind of a writer first. Mm. But stand up and, and T V kinda took over and were more fun and more lucrative for me, so I kinda went that way. But for me this is a big turn to my favorite thing, which is writing.
0: Well you're out, you're outstanding at it. It's um uh, it's intense, man. It's emotional. You you really get after the subject and I, I believe our comedy, our humor our sense of self and what we do in our present is affected directly by who we were as kids. And you don't hide who you were as a child. You come right at it in this book. Why don't you talk about growing up and what life was like as a little guy in, in the Rocky Mountains?
1: <laughs> uh, you know, one one goal I had with this book was, uh, listen, my family was and is, as I call them in the book, magnificent. It's, what, it's a really incredible family that I'm so proud of. My father's a civil rights attorney and my mom was an investigative journalist. And there were these big hippies that were firm believers in be the change you want to see in the world. And we were raised to be this really sensitive, empathetic, but proactive group of people. And my goal in sort of writing the book, one of many goals was to show that even in this seemingly ideal family uh, that has everything you one could hope for, and that's encouraged and loved. And even in that perfect a setting, mental illness can rear its ugly head viciously and take a beloved member out. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to capture what I consider a pretty ideal neighborhood. I'm sitting in the park called City Park right now that I grew up in. Uh, you know, the zoos here, mm-hmm. the museums here, and it's just we were central denver kids and denver's kind of blowing up right now but it was a little smaller a little dustier a little quieter growing up so you know we were kind of making our name in the small midwestern western city and uh just just trying to be heartfelt thoughtful intellectual people
0: you know as, as a kid there's three things that really kind of leapt off at me. And one you've already covered, you love Denver. You're you're you were a proud Denver kid. You're a proud Denver guy. The second was that you're a you're a very empathetic guy. Like, so I'm curious as a parent myself with four little kids, how did your mom and dad encourage and foster empathy within you and your sisters?
1: I don't even think it was something that they calculatedly did. I think it's just who they are. I mean, my mother was always taking in stray animals, and that just kind of went on. You know, if if you saw a dog running down the street with no collar, you didn't just say, oh, hope it gets to its house. You went and tracked it down and saw if it had collars and asked neighbors if they knew this dog. That was just how we were raised. And my father, you know, there's an anecdote in the book that it's pretty telling, but he's a big civil rights attorney, like I said. And one Mm -hmm. of the main things that he did was uh, nursing homes. He just takes out nursing homes, you know. these nursing homes that are these awful, you know, warehouses for the sick and dying with no oversight. My dad goes in and sues them into oblivion. Um, but back in the day there were no digital cameras. So you did, you know, you'd, you'd take photos to the photo mat and get photos developed. And so there was no separation between his evidence and our precious family memories. So if you're going through a, a book of, you know, or, a a bunch of photos it's like birthday party baseball game bed sore. i'm like but I was that is a massive bed sore. <laughs> so it's just kind of it's in the fabric of who we were you know we didn't just see my dad go to work and be like okay well you've been wrong let's write this wrong that was that was the two-pronged mom and dad forces that we had in our life so i feel like it just bled into every aspect of our being
0: well, they they were forces, and I mentioned there were three things that leapt off about the little baby Adam growing up. The third piece is you were just full, you were ripe with anxiety. Did,
1: oh yeah, your
0: earliest memories were you an anxious kid as early back, as far back as you can remember? Yeah, absolutely. Talk about that. I mean, you, you wrote I, uh, you wrote about it, but why don't you talk about it? Because I know a lot of our listeners deal with anxiety either themselves or within their families.
1: Yeah, you know, there's this disturbing drawing that I actually think I drew when Lydia was coming. Um, But it's a picture of me, and there's a baby, or I don't know if it's a baby or just another figure inside my belly, and a figure inside that belly, and a figure inside that belly. And it's got a big frowny face. And I remember giving that to my parents, and they were like, okay, well, this kid's kid's having some issues. (laughs) Um, So I, I just felt stuff strongly. And, you know, I talk about those I'd see those Sally Struthers commercials where she was trying to raise money yes. for starving African children. And, and I genuinely, as a four-year-old, was like, "Well, why do they die and I get to live? That's not fair. If they're dying, I should die. And that's just kind of how I was. Um, I, my sisters, I found out, were also similar, but we seemed to try to treat it with various OCD ticks and rituals that we, we tried to calm the chaos of the world through. What was yours? Oh man, yeah, I don't think you have a long enough podcast. We have
0: um, four hours for you to talk about how you self-soothe oh, through the anxiety. Well, hear- so let's get, let's get after it, Adam.
1: <laughs> it's gotten a lot better, but when I was a child, it was it was more this, this bedtime ritual of just shutting my systems down, and uh, I had a television in my room, which gives you some indication of the level of privilege I come from, um, but. I remember that I was always worried about what was going on inside that TV on the channels when I turned it off. And so I figured out that Channel 4 had pretty innocuous content throughout the night while I slept. And that Channel 9 also had pretty innocuous content, whereas Channel 31 or 20 had weird sci-fi movies, and scary stuff. So I had to make sure that the TV had been on Channel 4 and then Channel 9 last when I turned it off. And then I had to, you know, have my pillow perfectly centered and I had to say these weird prayers, even though we weren't religious, you know, it's just kind of this calming ritual that by the time it got to its height was probably about a half hour of stuff before I
0: could go to sleep. Well, and this of course shows up through your childhood, but even in this high school, you're a quiet kid, you're full of anxiety, you're almost OCD in some regards. And then there's a talent show. I'm blown away that you took the opportunity to step forward and to do a top 10 in front of the entire school to take us through that decision.
1: I'm blown away by it too. It must've been, it, it's a testament to how desperate I must've been feeling. Cause I, I still was a wallflower for years after that. It was just kind of a little, I don't know, a, a precursor, I guess, but yeah, I love David Letterman. Um, I convinced my parents to make my bedtime to after the top 10 list. So I got to watch his monologue. I got to watch the opening sketch and then the top 10. And then it was, okay, TV off on either channel four or nine (laughs) and go to sleep. Um, But I love the top 10s. And so at this terrible private school I went to that was a K through nine, I was in ninth grade and the uh, ninth graders had to give a, a speech. There was, you know, at assembly, one ninth grader had to do it every week as a practice of public speaking. And everyone was just terrified of these things, but I I seized on it as an opportunity, and I wrote this top ten list about their massive construction job they were doing on the school that year, and it just destroyed. And it was the first glimmer of like, oh, comedy might be the ticket here, kid. Like, I, I people look differently. Yeah. The next day, it all went back to normal and back to the loser table. But that day uh, was was very iconic in my personal lore.
0: Well, it's a big deal, uh, I would imagine, looking back on it, but it shapes the guy you became. Do you remember the first time you did stand-up in front of a, not a room of peers in high school, but in front of a bar with uh, paying patrons?
1: Oh, absolutely. It was, I did it at this dive bar called The Lion's Lair. Uh, It was an open mic. I had met my friend Ben Roy, who I now have that TV show, Those Who Can't, with. But I met Ben the week before, before at a bar, and he had told me he was a comic, which is hilarious because he'd been doing it for like six months. And I told him I was a writer, which is hilarious because I was freelancing for a publication, barely getting published. Um, but, you know, we both had to have our sense of grandiosity. Yes. And anyway, I had never met a comic in real life. And so that just kind of demystified it. I was like, oh, you're a normal guy. You, you do comedy. So he's like, go to this bar. So I, I went to that bar and I watched it one week. And I saw that there were several guys that were really funny, and then the rest were just garbage. And so I knew I was funnier than those, those garbage comics. So I wrote stuff, and I went back the next week, and not being hyperbolic, I blacked out as I got on stage. I had it memorized, so I, I, I remember getting on stage, and I remember getting off, and people were laughing and applauding. And then all of the other comics at the bar were kind of like, hey man, what's your name? Who are you? I'd been ushered in informally into this club and I, it was like a shot in the arm. I was, I I just wanted that feeling for the rest of my life.
0: Well, you've been doing it really ever since you went back the following week and tried again. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I did. I did. And, uh, that it it went well, it went well for the first six months or so. And then you start to bomb, (laughs) but you got to get through those months before, uh, you can get back on the horse. So yeah, once, once I tasted it, I've never stopped.
0: That idea of bombing, I think is something that every listener, including the guy who is speaking right now can relate to this idea of putting yourself out there and flopping and failing terribly, just brutally. As a comic, there are a lot of eyeballs staring at, at, staring back at you and sometimes cameras recording this. But yeah. Do you remember the first time you bombed or the 11th time you bombed? And how do you recover from that, do better afterwards th- from that, and then go back and do it again and try again? Like I think that process is healthy for all of us, Adam. I mean,
1: for comedy, it's very gallows humor. There's black humor that just hangs over stand-up comedy. And I remember the first, I don't know, 10 times, it went really well. And you can see some of the comics being resentful they're like who's this guy he's always he always does great what is it about and i remember writing some material and it was the first time i had felt comfortable enough to invite a friend to come watch because i did it in private as a dirty little secret for maybe i don't know six months but i finally the sheer hubris i felt i felt confident enough to invite friends and it was that night that i just ate it and my friends were like, cool hobby you got, man. Let me know how it goes. And they kind of kind of disappeared. But for me, it was seeing the other comics be like, yeah, now you're a comic. Like, now get back up on the horse. All right, figure it out. And it, it's almost like an athlete or something. It's just like practicing hitting a baseball or, or throwing a football. You're going to throw it errantly a bunch, but you throw it right enough to want to figure out how to do it right most of the time.
0: One of your co-pilots throughout the process is your youngest sister, Lydia. How much younger than you was she? Four years. And uh, what was her role in helping you craft the comedy that you're sharing, uh, both in written word and also on stage? How how was she helping you uh, model this humor?
1: Well, it was interesting because growing up, she and I really did develop our senses of humor together off of the television we watched, off of the way we would riff off of each other and do little two-man bits and just just the way we related was always a level of sarcasm and cynicism and just just uh dark humor between us and then i started doing comedy and she lived down the road she went to college at colorado college just about an hour from denver and after she graduated she stayed down there and was working at an animal shelter but i was getting better and better at comedy and she obviously knew i was doing stand-up we were close but I remember her going to a show and I think she was kind of surprised to see, Oh, my brother's getting decent at this. And then I brought her to some shows that I was starting to run in Denver, which were, you know, what you would call indie comedy. They're a little, a little cooler than your club comedy, just a little more, uh, pretentious anyway. And she was intrigued. She was like, this is really awesome. And she was thinking about moving back to Denver. And she was kind of like, if I move back home, can I help you with this? And how, in whatever way you deem fit. And I was like, of course. So, you know, initially she would run the door at the shows. She would help make flyers. We would always, we always had these very elaborate productions that required lighting cues and sound Mm -hmm. cues and, you know, and she would, she would do all that. And then I trusted her so intimately and we were so funny together that, you know, we'd start going to breakfast the next morning after a big show and just kind of breaking it down. And she'd be like, you know, it would work if, if you did this or that bit you did was killing, but it could use one more piece, or it was too long. You should edit this part out. And her advice was really excellent, and and always on the nose. And so she just kind of became a a co-conspirator, you know, for lack of a better word. And and she was always there. And it was it coincided with this rise of this group, the Grolics, myself and Ben Roy and Andrew Overdahl. You know, we went on to get a TV show, and mm-hmm. this was the nascent stages of that. Um, in a very local, but hometown pride type of way, it felt like Denver was really rooting for us. And she was, um, she was there every step of the way.
0: In tragedy and pl- tragedy plus time, you, you, it's a love letter, I think, to your sister, to your family, and to the readers. In large part about this incredible woman, this little sister of yours that you got to know and you got to love. So outside of comedy and outside of the breakfast afterwards, talk about what made her so special. Well, she was, I mean,
1: the highest compliment I can pay anybody is that they're an individual. And she was 100% herself. Like she didn't, especially my generation, I'm 38, I feel like there's a lot of like pure cultural pressure to like this thing or to be into that thing. And maybe social media is indicative of that, but she just was totally herself. And I loved that about her. There was no convincing her one way or the other. It was more about what she would bring to the table. And and I don't know, she was just funny, but odd funny. Mm. She was unique. She was unique. I mean, it's like she was a musician. She would play jazz. You know, she played the off notes. <laughs> um, so she marched to this beat of her own drummer.
0: She could speak and, backwards. And everyone...
1: Oh, yeah, she could She speak fluently backwards, which was very bizarre. That was a fun parlor trick. <laughs> um right. Once we discovered that, we just did that all the time. But I don't know. Everyone was always impressed with Lydia, and she could never take it. She could never allow a compliment. She could never accept that she was exceptional and unique. She just she would just brush off any compliment and and disappear. And then the next day, she would come tell you, like, thank you for saying that compliment. (laughs) You know, it was very – she wasn't cool in the limelight. She didn't like it, but she coveted it all the same.
0: She loved people. It seems like she loved the broken and loved animals and uh I'm curious Adam when did you begin to recognize that your sister was was changing and not for the better?
1: I mean, I know exactly what it was. There was this incident. You know, I, it's important for me to stress that you know, while I was anxious, while I suffered from OCD, so did my sister's. Uh and We, it wasn't all that out of the ordinary, you know, and I, and my family was kind of like, all right, we got some sensitive kids, they got some quirks, we're all fine. You know, it wasn't, and we, and if there was anything, you know, when I drew those morbid drawings and, and was sad about the African children starving, my parents sent me to therapy. So there was no stigma about mental health. We explored that stuff, but I guess what I'm trying to say is both my sisters and I were dark Mm -hmm. and we kind of coveted dark things we we fetishized the tortured artists we like vincent van gogh and elliot smith and sylvia plath you know those are people that we thought were the highest art out there um so there was a certain dark intellectualism running through all of us but with lydia it just seemed to turn when she sort of broke down at my dad's office one day and she was paralegaling for him and just confessed that she couldn't sleep, that she couldn't relax her brain, that she couldn't turn her brain off. And she was an avid reader, and she said, "I can't read. I literally cannot read a sentence without scanning it backwards. And I'll I'll go for five hours, and I haven't even gotten a paragraph." And it, the way she confessed it to my father was very, you know, it was, was gut wrenching. She was crying, and she was asking for help. and It was just out of left field. None of us knew that she was at that place. And my father, you know, was like, well, let's get your help. We're going to figure this out. But that was the first all of us were like, what is going on with Lydia? Hmm. This seems different than what we've all sort of shared. I suffered from depression in college. I pulled out of it. What was going on with Lydia suddenly started to seem way more severe and more real than anything any of us had dealt with
0: you know i don't think there's any surprises where the story eventually goes but looking back on the progression toward that moment when you find out that your sister is is no longer with us are there regrets that you and your family have that you think gosh john if we had done this differently maybe the result is completely differently and it different for us and maybe that matters a lot to the families listening right now at home because maybe you ought to try this or that
1: honestly and it's taken me some time and therapy and thought to get to this point but no there are no regrets from the get-go from that moment we were all hands on deck all the time and of course i feel guilty and i wonder if i didn't do enough but I can't think of anything more we could have done. And that's the scary, sad thing about this, is that mental illness can come snatch a person away. And, there, you know, I read some study that in women, the late 20s are a particularly perceptible period for mental illness. I'm hardly an expert, I don't know. I read that somewhere. And so, some part of me wishes we had tinder down and sat on her until she was 35. She pulled out of it, but how realistic is that?
0: Right. You, um, you write in great detail about the struggle and the spin downward, and then you hop on a flight because you have the opportunity, really of a lifetime to leave Denver, not forever, but for a little while to head up to Montreal, uh, July 31st, 2012. It's a big deal for you. What, what happens?
1: Well, uh, yeah, so Montreal. But before is, the is, before um, the
0: thirty first. So what happens in Montreal that July?
1: Yeah. Yes, okay. Um yeah, I mean I, I liken it to in the book to being kind of drafted into the NFL, the Montreal new faces is Hollywood sort of being like, All right, here are the twelve or sixteen young comedians that we deem funny. And these are the new faces. And they're going to perform for you. And, you know, all the big Hollywood agencies are there and, I signed with an agency. I kicked butt. It was great. Uh, and my friends and I had written this script that had had a little bit of interest previous called Those Who Can't. And everywhere in Montreal, all these people that work for this network and that network were like, ah, I read your script. I love it. You coming to LA after this? You know, it was this very schmoozy LA dream. And I was crushing it. And I was like, you bet I'm coming to, to L.A. soon. I'll be there after this festival mm-hmm. in you know, two weeks. I'll see you there and we'll meet and we'll talk about the script. Um, so it was this head-spinning stuff for a comic from Denver who'd been struggling to get noticed on a national scale, you know?
0: I do know. And uh, uh, I'll keep, keep going. Talk Talk about what happens after Montreal.
1: Well, yeah, so I was all set on like you know, maybe I'll move to LA. Maybe I'll really make a a go at it. And I get home and, you know, a day and a half later, Lydia took her own life. And it was, and it was, and hopefully forever will be the singular worst thing that ever happened to me and my family. And it was, you know, only, I'm only six years removed from this, Um, but I have some distance and thoughts on it obviously I wrote a book but it's so crazy how when you have this one idea of life and how life's going to be and it's full of these really ultimately meaningless things like television shows and Hollywood and and career ambition and then what truly matters is just put so firmly in front of you it's shocking it's like the whole axis of your being shifts
0: you get the email from your sister and I believe it simply said, love y'all. Yeah. Adam, when you read that, did you sense, because what we did not tell our listeners is you've been communicating with your sister every day for your adult life. This wasn't a distant relationship. You guys were dear, dear, dear tight friends. And then you get this kind of random email that day. Love y'all. What did that mean to you when you first read it? Well, you know, as I don't know if we've
1: talked about it at this point, but up uh, by now in the narrative of Lydia and this unfortunate downward spiral, you know she had been to the hospital twice. The first time we thought was an accident. The second time was a overdose on pills and a mandatory psych hold for three days. You know, so we were all aware that this was getting horrible with Lydia. But Lydia and I were so close. I, maybe a dozen times mm-hmm. I looked her dead in the eyes and said, "Are you going to kill yourself?" And she said, "No, I'm not going to kill myself. Like I'm going through this. It's awful, but I'm beating it." And I, you know, and we—I had no reason to disbelieve her. And this is my most intimate. This is my sister. This is my best friend. I, you know, I, she fooled me, and I, I didn't have any reason to doubt it. But so when she sent that email, "Love you all," I definitely still have a pit feeling in my stomach when I even say the words. But I—I I suspected something. But also, there had been a couple of five-alarm fires previous to this. Right. So I think what I expected was like, okay, all right, we're going to have to take Lydia to the hospital again, or, or or maybe she's taking a new drug that a side effect is euphoria, and she's mm-hmm. really just feeling like she loves us all. I don't know. And my sister, Anna, immediately called me, and she said, you get the email? I said, I got the email. She said, well, can you check on her? I'm at work. I said, of course. You know, I lived blocks from Lydia. So right. I went to check on her
0: and, and I found her. And this is a moment, of course, that changes your life and we don't need to go into the details. But for those listening right now, Adam, that have a family member, a spouse, a sibling, a child struggling with brain illness, with mental health illness, with a struggle in any regard emotionally, as someone who has been on the other side of it, but you, you both endured it and you saw it with your sister, what advice would you have for those of us uh, loving someone through this right now?
1: Well, I remember when Lydia was going through this, the community, my comedy community loved Lydia. And I remember a friend of mine calling and saying, hey, your sister was acting crazy last night at the bar and she made a scene or whatever. And I remember being like, thanks, man. You know, she's going through a rough time. I appreciate you Let me know. I'm going to call her. And I called her and I sort of told her that. and it, And she was just devastated by that. That like people could be right perceiving her as acting crazy, or or that people were talking about her as being that way, and it makes me so sad for her that she felt shame about that. Um, and so, to anybody who is going through that or has a family member that's going through that, I think it's really important to take away the shame of that. I, you know, people work on their physical health, and we all pat them on the back and say, "Hey, way to eat good, way to exercise." It should be the exact same for people who are working on their mental health. And we should say, hey, way to just go to therapist. Way to like try and do prescription yes. and realize it's not for you and move on to the next one. It should not be stigmatized. And it makes me really sad that Lydia felt the stigma of it. And it makes me sad that anyone in 2018, when we all think we're so woke and compassionate, it's still we whisper the word suicide or depression or mental illness. And it's like, I, this was not the goal, writing the book. I'm telling you, I was just trying to like help myself yes. deal with all this crap. But I can see the effect it has on people. And if anything, it's like, bring it into the light, look at it. It's normal, and it's so pervasive. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to be ashamed of feeling it or your family member who is feeling it. So many people are going through it, way more than you think. Believe me, people reach out to me all the time. So I just
0: think there's that.
1: I think that it's normal. It's just like working on your physical health. You can work on your mental health. That's okay.
0: Well, while you're sharing all this, I'm nodding my head. I'm looking to my left. My producer is nodding his head. Our family's been through this. My wife's family's been through this. Almost anyone that I know really well, really closely, they've got a story. And yet if they get diagnosed with cancer, we bring it into the light. We pray for them. We bring them meals. If they lose their house in a fire, we we give them ours but when that diagnosis right. of depression or bipolar or anxiety or whatever else it may be shows up we, we don't even whisper it you know we don't even have enough audacity to whisper it
1: or or like i mean you know when anthony bourdain took his own life i'm a huge bourdain fan like what a hero of a guy he lived his life really well and in a and very interestingly and i remember the first thing anyone said is like well that guy's got the best life ever <laughs> how could he do this you would never say that you'd be like Anthony bourdain had the best life ever. Why would he go get cancer? You know, it's right. just, and, and you have to treat it that way. You really do. We say it, but we have to be like, do it.
0: <laughs> well, Adam Caden Holland had the best life ever. Then his sister dies. Dude, you're mourning, you're struggling, you're drinking, you're in a dark place. And 10 days after you find her, you're on a plane heading out west to be funny. You know, I've lost some dear <laughs> yeah. friends and family members in my life, and I licked my wounds a lot longer than that. I, I really don't know how you got on a plane. And I have no idea how you stood in front of producers and live audiences uh, like a joker, acting like everything was perfect and right in the world again. So, God, walk me through mentally how you do it.
1: Well, you know, on that specific trip, I wasn't, I didn't go perform. I went to, uh, the, you know, go seize on that momentum I had from Montreal, but I didn't want to go in the least. I didn't. And I told my parents, I don't want to go. I don't want to leave you. We're all, I, I went to my parents' house to pick my dog and I stayed there for a month. You know, I didn't, I went back into the nest and was with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to go. I didn't, I didn't still right in the head and I didn't want to leave my family, but you know, my, and I was, My family said, you know, do it for Lydia. And At that point, I didn't care. I was so mad at Lydia. I was like, what do you mean do it for Lydia? Lydia put us here. (laughs) I I was going through the stage of anger. Um, But I sensed that (laughs) we just needed a narrative shift. All we were talking about was death and Lydia. And everything was just hell, man. It was just awful. And, you know, I figured if I could go and... Provide my aunt family with anecdotes about cheesy LA producers. <laughs> like you wouldn't believe what this douchebag said to me today. I, I would just, it would just be a minute that we weren't talking about Lydia and death. Yes. And so I went out there and I and I did it. And I had a manager at the time, and I told him like, please don't set me up with any BS meetings. I'll snap, man. I'm like really a thin frayed wire right now. Um, and so he tried very hard to just set me up with meaningful interactions and it, it proved well we sold the script but it was funny on that trip you know i remember i write about it in the book a, a high school friend reached out to me a girl who I hadn't talked to you know in high school and i was 30 since high school i was 32 at the time and she had seen what had happened to me online and she just reached out to me and said hey my friend's got a beach house in malibu i'm going swimming do you want to go swimming mm. and i was just like that was such a nice human effort I couldn't even think of a reason to say why. And another comedy buddy, Rory, is on my show. Rory Scoville, he's such a funny dude. I remember we weren't that good of friends, but he just called me up. And was like, my wife and I are having people over for dinner. Like, come on over, you know? And it was just these very human, like, helpful people reaching out to me that in those moments just meant the world, you know? So as I'm doing these meetings, I'm also at night just being with comics, being normal, eating. A nice salmon dinner and listening to them laugh no one asking me to be the funny guy just including you know in
0: do you think in some regard your ability to disconnect from success and authentically own where you were and and the power of the script freed you eventually to sell it it, it seems like you become emboldened through this experience to just be very direct with these producers and you don't take their bowl and you give it right back to them. And I don't, I wonder if you would have done that had you not lost your sister.
1: No, I I mean, I don't think I would have at all. I don't think she was like, you know, it's not one of those, like in that moment she was watching over me. It's more like she took away. I didn't care. I was nihilistic. Um, so if they wanted to buy my script, awesome. If they didn't, I was like, then let me get out of this dumb office, you know? It, it, was, it was literally that blunt. So I, I think normally, I, you know, I'm a very polite Colorado boy. <laughs> I'm, I have good manners.
0: And good teeth. Deferential.
1: Great, you know, decent teeth. And <laughs> I think I would have used all those uh, and, and been sort of more meek. But just the place my head was in, I was like, listen, man, could you tell me if you're into this? Because if not, I need to go cry in a rental car, like right now you know it was that level of honesty and i think it somehow spoke to those people who you know invested in the project
0: you uh you sell it but you're struggling Middle. you remain in that very dark place and you go for therapy i'd never heard of before i read it it's called emdr therapy for the listeners mm-hmm. right now adam what is emdr without giving us the background scientifically but what did it do for you
1: well, it's it stands for eye movement desensitization. So hard to say desensitization, <laughs> eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Boom, nailed it. Uh, it's thank you. It's um it's a form of therapy that is designed to treat uh, PTSD. And uh, the way it went for me, although I understand there's various iterations of it, but essentially the therapist that I landed at likened the memory of, of finding my little sister to, uh, an errant file, uh, one that needed to be properly filed away. And it was coming back up. I was having flashbacks and nightmares and it was, you know, literally traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And she said that it's an errant file. And so through this process of EMDR will help you file it away. And for me, what it meant was that, you know, we put these little, these electronic pulsers in my hand that kind of I held two, one in each hand, and they tick-tock back and forth. And you close your eyes. You sort of feel that tick-tock, tick-tock. And your eyes naturally go back and forth to that movement, simulating rapid eye movement when we're sleeping. And apparently that's when the brain kind of, while we're asleep, processes everything we see and do. And so by simulating that and having this therapist walk me through the memory and have me tell her about it again and again and again, I started to get control of the memory. And after, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 times going to her, eventually I was like, I think I got this. I think it's filed away. And, you know, it was really important to me, oddly, to not erase it. I was like, I don't want my brain, and it's not that, it's not brainwashing. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I wanted that memory. I don't know why I was, the last memory I have of my sister. And as perverse as this is, there was a real intimacy there. You know, it was me and her at the final moment. And I didn't want that gone. I wanted that if I wanted, if I wanted. I just wanted to control it. Yes. Um, and she really helped me do that. And, and EMDR is a, I'm a big believer in it. And, you know, I had, I'd gone to a bunch of therapists and rejected them for one reason or another. A lot of them were very, um, uh, you know, they were nice, but pitying. They, yes. they would sigh and be like, oh, my God, you I can't even imagine it. And I just, I didn't want pity. And I remember this woman, you know, she let me know that she'd worked with African child soldiers and people who have been tortured and, you know, just horrific yes. stuff. So her attitude was kind of like, you went through something terrible. I've seen many people through many terrible things. Let's get to work. And yes. I just, I, it was a tough love. And, I, and it spoke That's to me awesome. in that moment, and I was – I guess I was just really ready for it.
0: You know, my my uh, mom and dad wrote a book 15 years ago about our story after little John O'Leary gets burned, and they wrote about the family coming together and what we went through and the, the lows and the highs, and then we crossed the finish line victoriously together. And even that was an intimate portrayal of our family that everybody had to sign off on. And this was a success story. Yeah. I'm curious, as you go about deciding to write this one, a very difficult and a very different story, did you first get permission from your sister and your mom and dad? I did.
1: I did. And, um, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not the easiest thing in the world to have this be public and our most private brief right. here on display in Adam's book. It's, and it's something that I want, you know, I feel very conflicted about. But my family's been really great at allowing each member to mourn how they need to mourn. And I think that they all understand that Adam is this sort of public guy and he processes these things through his jokes or his writing or whatever. And, you know, I gave it to all of them before I turned it into the editor and I was like, anything you want to change, you let me know. The last thing I'm trying to do is hurt our family anymore here. Um, and you know, I love my family. It wasn't some like, you know, got some crops. I got some, you know, things I need to say about this family. It wasn't. It wasn't like that. It's, <laughs> it's more of a loving portrayal. Um, so I think that you know, it wasn't like a vendetta book. It was more a tribute to the family and a sad uh, portrayal of of what happened. But my family understands, and they're very proud, and they think it's well written and stuff. But you know, I I don't know what it's been like for you, but I really. I'm mean, in fear of the day where somebody just bulldozes into my mom at the supermarket. And it's like, oh my god, I read Adam's book. Oh, just like you know, my mom doesn't want to talk about her dead daughter that day. Yes, maybe, you know, so that's that's something I can't control. And my family's graciously allowed me to do it, but it is what it is. It's um, I tried to do Lydia justice, and my mom actually gave me the nicest compliment when she read it. She had a few you know it wasn't even in big notes it was like you know i remember this a little differently mm-hmm. or this detail is different but she said that it felt like she spent the afternoon with lydia mm. and you know I, I don't need a better review than that i was like okay well then i've done a good job here
0: well there, there's within the book there's so many small and i don't believe they're small i think everything is big but so many examples of humanizing characters that remind us we're all in this together and Maybe one of the best outside of your girlfriend now wife, Katie, is one that your dad met and hung with and served when he was with uh, when he was with him, when he got the email from your sister. Your dad is not in Denver, Colorado when your sister takes her life. He's in Guantanamo, right. It's yeah, it's this shocking story in some regards. So tell us what your dad was doing in Guantanamo and uh, what happened when he heard that his daughter had taken her own life.
1: You know, my dad's a civil rights attorney, and it was actually my sister, who's a partner in the firm with him, Anna, who brought, you know, Gitmo to his attention. He was aware of these guys being detained there illegally, but Anna came out of law school with a fire under her ass about Gitmo. You know, this is the biggest civil rights injustice in the modern era, and blah blah blah. And it's not hard to light my dad's civil rights fire, so he's like, "You're right." And so, they joined this group of attorneys called the Gitmo attorneys that do pro bono work, getting these detainees out of Guantanamo Bay. Their whole point is either charge them with a crime or release them. You're not allowed to hold people indefinitely. That's not the justice system that we have. That's not democracy. Um, And so they've gotten two guys out, but my dad was meeting with a client when he got the news. um, And the client just hugged my dad and held him. And he told him, go, go home like this. What I'm going through is nothing. You go home, you be with your family. We'll talk, just get out of here. And it's a beautiful moment. You know, a man who'd been detained for eight years, just hugging my dad and just being there for him in this worst moment of his life. And then my dad had to fly, you know, 20 some hours back to Denver. It's it's awful for my dad, but he came home, you know, like a, like a hero. And, just started to try to piece his family back together and and help us all mourn like we were all doing. Well,
0: and I, I I whisper the name and I'm going to scream it a little bit louder so you can brag on her. But one of the unsung heroes within your book, I feel is Katie. You, uh, you had just (laughs) begun dating her before your sister lost her life and, uh, and then that falls apart, but then you return uh, on your knees and, and, uh, talk about Katie and what it was about her that allowed the light to return back into the room. Yeah. Katie has been a godsend. I mean,
1: she, it was weird. You know, comics are, are navel gazing, especially in their twenties. You know, it's all about me, 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 me and my stand up And how did my set go last night? And, you know, for me, ever the Peter Pan, I was not really open to a relationship or a meaningful one anyway. So Katie and I started dating and, you know, I was kind of like, yeah, whatever. I'm still, I'm the comic guy. But then this happened and, Katie and I tried to be together for a while, but I was so dark and hurting. I I remember breaking up with her and telling her, "I can't be optimistic now. I'm not there, and I need to like be all in, negative and broken." Which is like, what do you? I can't imagine her reaction. She's like, "I well, I think I love you, and I guess bye." But after you know. The hell I went through, I don't even know the timeline. I went back and, and I asked her to give me another shot. And she did, but she was really great. I mean, she tough loved me. And she was like, I'm down to do this, but I can't have an absentee partner. And if you're expecting me to just hold you up, that's not how this is going to work. I need you to be there for me. I want—I don't want to waste time. I'm, I'm old school. I want a family. I want to get married. I want kids. You know, not now immediately, but she was just straightforward about that. And she's just, she's the most, she's the least cynical person I've ever met in my life. Mm. She's purely, like, optimistic and kind. And I I don't know, I'm such a cynical bastard that she was just this glowing light that kind of came in and really has helped me through so much. And now, you know, a nice, it's not a happy ending, but it's really nice. You know, she's six months pregnant and we got our first kiddo coming in november and we're like so
0: happy and excited dude it is a happy ending and uh maybe instead of having the cynic on the show we should have your beautiful bride the the mother of your your first child she's a better
1: interview man she's she's a better interview
0: uh (laughs) what what, you know you've you've written this book tragedy plus time it is out it is making the rounds it is being written up it is being rated and uh and judged and i think celebrated but what has surprised you most about the response to the book so far so far um,
1: gosh, that's a good question. You know what surprised me most, although I could see it coming, is is how many people are like, I can relate.
0: Yeah, me too. <laughs> I
1: and how many and many people are like, thank you, thank you. I'm going through this. My sister's going through this. My brother, my best friend, my dad. I, I knew this because I I'd written various articles, but the book is is tenfold that. And so, just that this is affecting people um, on the scale it is and that people can relate, it's just the like we were discussing earlier, the pervasiveness of mental illness. Yes. And uh, I, I told the publishers when I sold this book, I was like, if you're expecting a clean landing where I'm like, and now I'm healed, the end. This is not the book for you, but I just tried to write about the whole process, every part of it, the, the death, the mourning, the sadness, the humor, the love as one kind of messy jumble because that's how I experienced it. And I think a lot of people are like, yes, thank you. That's how I experienced it. Um, And so I think that's kind of resonating.
0: You you held, I don't think, anything back in the writing of it. It's very authentic. It's dark. It's full of light. It's full of pain and humor and profanity. I wrote a book and uh, we got an email from a guy who said you used the word freaking and it offended him. If that word offends that person, oh, you, you may not want to read "Tragedy Plus Time." But if you can bear that word plus a whole litany of others, I, I encourage folks to check it out. We're giving away a free free uh, chapter.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate
0: that. It, 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 so, for the folks that are like, oh, "I'm on the fence. I'm not sure if I trust this guy or not," well, email me and I'll send you a free chapter myself, and you can you can uh, you can be your own judge on this one. But email me at info at john dot com and I'll send you a free chapter personally. It, it is a beautiful memoir. It's a beautiful love letter to uh, your living sister. It's really a really, it's a gift, man. So I appreciate you sharing it.
1: No, well, thank you very much. And and I appreciate you having me on and talk about it. it. It means a lot, so thank you.
0: And Adam, you're not quite off the hook yet. We have seven questions that we guide all of our guests through, and uh, we wanna make sure that you get asked the Live Inspired Seven. So here we go, man, buckle up. The first question is, all what right. is, Besides the book "Tragedy Plus Time," the best book you've ever read?
1: Oh wow, what a great question! Um, the best book I've ever. Okay, I really, if put on the spot, there's a book by Ken Kesey. He wrote one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, after that, he wrote a second book called "Sometimes a Great Notion." Mm. That's probably my favorite book. I
0: love I, it. Never heard, never read it. What is it about? It's about this logging
1: family in Oregon, and one brother goes off to college, some Ivy League college, and he comes back and he's helping this kind of like bullish logging family as they basically like go against the union. But it's just beautiful. Like I, I Ken Kesey, you know, went on and did The Merry Pranksters. And in my humble opinion, I think that drugs kind of hurt his writing. But those first two books are beautiful. And sometimes The Great Notion is is a really gorgeously
0: written book. Adam, what's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed when you were a child that you wish you exhibited as brightly today?
1: It's something we were discussing, and it's empathy. It's empathy. I was way more empathetic as a child. I think I've put up some walls. And I think the lesson that Lydia can teach us all is is pure Empathy for everyone. Mm. We button ourselves up in our little worlds, and I often don't have enough empathy, and I, I can, I struggle, and I need to do better at that.
0: If you could sit on a bench uh, overlooking a beach, or in your case, a beautiful mountain range, and have a long sure. conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you like seated next to you on that bench?
1: I mean, that's a no-brainer. It'd be Lydia.
0: What's the first thing you tell Lydia?
1: I miss you. I miss the hell out of you.
0: (laughs) What's the best advice that Lydia or anyone else has ever given you? So what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: Oh man, that's a really tough one. Um, I'm sorry to go back to the book, but there's a section in the book where a beloved family friend dies when we're young. And my dad is trying to explain to us, you know, this family that he was not raised religiously, how to even begin to cope with this type of grief. And he pulled out a book of photographs from the Hubble telescope, Mm -hmm. of like comets and black holes and quasars. And he just turned the pages and sat with us three kids and said, isn't this amazing? And we don't know why any of this exists or or what it means. And yet we get to live in all of it. Isn't that incredible? And uh, that's kind of how I've chosen. That's my religion right there.
0: You know, you you wrote about your religion several times in the book, and sometimes your religion was space. Other times it was the Cosby family on sitcom. It, <laughs> it, it evolves, but you proclaim several times near the end, "I am not an atheist. I am uh, agnostic, and I am seeking." Tell me why that why that difference matters to you.
1: It's funny that I have all these different <laughs> gods or religions. I think it's like when you don't when you're not raised religious, you cobble together your own things that mean something to you. Um, I think I, I make that, that clarification because I, my, my resentment towards any religion is the, the knowing the like, I think I've got the right take on this. I just resent that. Um, and you know, with atheism, I, I think I resent it. it's like, oh, you're so sure there's no God. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think I like people who are say, say that they're questioning and trying to figure it out. I like, I like seekers and searchers.
0: Well, we like seekers and searchers too, man. So keep keep seeking, and we'll we'll be uh, we'll be seeking with you. <laughs> w- what would you tell your twenty year old self?
1: Oh man, don't take yourself so seriously. You're going to be all right.
0: All right, brother. Well, you've you've run the gauntlet. This is question number seven for Adam Caden Holland. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read?
1: <laughs> Good lord. Um He died as he lived with humor.
0: Uh Adam Caden Holland, author of Tragedy Plus Time, comic and uh, writer, and now my friend, uh keep laughing, keep showing us the way forward through through humor, through tragedy, through redemption and through life. It is uh it's a beautiful, beautiful gift that you've given the rest of us.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I, uh, I'm a fan, so it means a lot for me to do this. So I, I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: My friends, that is Adam Caden Holland. This is John O'Leary. And today is your day. Live Inspired. My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded, Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in-studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month for a live inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. and Here's a secret. It's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now. Check it out. It's at JohnO'LearyInspires.com forward slash studio. One more time. It's JohnO'LearyInspires.com forward slash studio.